6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 135 through 144. Well, we're in the book of Psalms in what's the, the fifth of five books. In fact, we're going to undertake close to the end tonight, Psalm 135 through 144. And uh, that will leave just a few, a half a dozen actually, for uh, next time, which we, in which we will finish our review of the book. But uh, uh, we're going to start, of course, with Psalm 135. We're going to praise the Lord for an interesting thing, for who he is, for who he is. We've just finished the pilgrim psalms, the 15 songs of ascents as they traveled on those three compulsory feasts every year, every able-bodied Judas family pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem. And the 15 songs of ascent were our uh, subject last time. This psalm is sort of a parenthesis of hallelujahs. It begins with praise the Lord, in fact, four times, and ends with bless the Lord four times. In fact, hallelujah itself is repeated, I think, eight times in the psalm. And in this, Israel praises God for many of his achievements on their behalf in the past. So let's just jump in. Psalm 135, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Remember, these were songs. We don't have the music, but these were, these were intended to be sung. So it's a, very special, it's a poem, but a very special kind. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Indeed he did, but why? Why did he pick Israel? Israel's a chosen people. He picked them, gave them some very interesting distinctives, not the least of which is he he dwelt among them. He entrusted them with his word. No other nation on the planet Earth can make that claim or anything even coming close to that. Well, why Israel? Well, probably the only real answer is in verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. He was good to them. That was his choice, and he's in charge. He can do what he likes. Continuing, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. We're going to find from verses 15 on that the, the so-called gods can't do anything. And uh, Yodhe or the Father God, can do anything he wants. Well, almost anything he wants. There are some things God can't do. Did you know that? Did you know that? There's some things he can't do. He can't learn. I like that one. Because if he can't learn, he can't be disappointed in me. I might be disappointed in my behavior. 
He's not surprised. He knows all things from the beginning. And he, and he loves me anyway. That's amazing. The other thing God can't, there's not something else he cannot do. He cannot lie. Eight times in the scripture, the eternal one cannot lie. So he can't redo anything. The Muslims claim Allah can do anything. In fact, he's, he's presented as being capricious. You never know what he's going to do for sure. Read that untrustworthy. The God of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov delights in making and keeping his promises. Continuing verse 6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and all deep places. And I have no idea what that might mean, but your conjecture is as good as mine. The Buso, I guess. There's, there's regions down there that we know little of. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. See, it's God that makes the weather. He runs the universe as he sees, as he sees fit. That also means he doesn't have to answer our questions. He just asks us to trust him and live a life of faith. Then it goes on about some of the history here. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. You know, it's amazing how often in the scripture, God makes reference to the exodus of Egypt as one of his great achievements. God does many great things, and we could go on and on and list them. But it's fascinating to me how often he points to that particular issue as a source of, of pride, if I can put it that way. Smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants, who smote great nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. We're going to hear more of those before the evening's over. And gave their land for an heritage, and a heritage unto Israel, his people. Thy name, O Lord, endureth forever, and thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will repent himself concerning his servants. It's interesting how the psalmist here is comparing the living God with idols. You know, uh, it, was, it was interesting to realize that there was a time that the great God Ra, R-A, Ra, had shrines covering many, many acres. And today, it's just a filler for crossword puzzles. That's really all it amounts to, isn't it? Interesting. For the Lord will judge his people and he will repent himself. You know, it's interesting. You have to take a course in comparative religions in a university or someplace to learn the names of all these false gods. You won't learn them any other way. But no one has to go anywhere and not be confronted with the, the name of the living God in one form or another. Yodhavave or the Messiah of Israel, whatever. Continuing about these idols, I love this passage. It's actually a quote from Psalm 115. We touched on it before. But it's almost a lift from that. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. 
neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Well, on the one hand, of course, this is one of the, you know, as you try to hide the humor of the whole thing, there's several places in the scripture where it describes how they go out and cut out a tree and then carve on it and bow down before it as a god. It's, you know, it, it's, it is pretty ridiculous. But there's just no way to summarize the insanity of paganism and the cost to humanity over the centuries. But there is a verse here I want you to really remember, and that's verse 18. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. The fundamental truth that shows up several times in the scripture, but it's very profound, is that we become like the things we worship. Is the world materialistic? Is the world cold and unforgiving? If you worship the world, you'll become like what you worship. You'll become materialistic, cold, and unforgiving. You can put anything in that blank you like. Whatever you're worshiping, that's what you will be ultimately become like. That's one of the most fundamental reasons why it's important to make sure you're worshiping Jesus Christ. Because that's who you want to become like. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. That's on the idol side. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Bless, bless ye the Lord. See, Israel could praise the Lord because he dwelt among them. No other nation can make that statement. And uh, he is going to rule the planet Earth once again out of Israel, out of Zion. That's the strange destiny. Aaron and, and uh, Levi being mentioned because, of course, the focus of the, the singing here was the priests in the temple. Okay, the next psalm is probably very familiar to you, although you may not remember the number 136, but I encourage you to try to remember that number because this psalm is, is uh, very direct. It's sometimes called the Great Hallel or the Great Hallelujah. Every verse has the same refrain. For his mercy endureth forever. It was designed to be sung probably antiphonally, if you will, with a leader singing the one part and then everybody else echoing the, the refrain. And uh, it's an antiphonal psalm, we believe. This psalm will turn history into theology and turn the theology into worship. It was sung at the dedication of Solomon's temple. And it was sung by King Jehoshaphat's uh, singers when Judah was attacked by Moab and Ammon and probably on many other occasions in their history. Psalm 136. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And, and you say? Well, I did, I did, let me hear it a little more clearly. There we go. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. You're getting it. This is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To him who alone doeth great wonders. To him that by wisdom made the heavens. 
To him that stretcheth out the earth above the waters. You know, it's interesting that we have here so far an emphasis on him as creator. He does these great wonders. He made, made by wisdom. What was the first thing that was ever created? Do you know? Good for you. Someone did their homework. Wisdom is exactly it. Proverbs 8. Very good. You get a star. That's well done. Well done. And uh, that by wisdom made the heavens, that stretches out the earth above the waters. Did you know that there is a specific judgment pronounced upon any culture, upon any nation, that fails to acknowledge him as a creator? And I, it shocked me to discover this. It's something I thought I knew many years ago, but I never realized it was a judgment of God. And that if you read Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and to the end of that chapter, it points out that for those cultures that fail to acknowledge him as a creator, God will give them over to this particular judgment. That judgment is homosexuality. I've always looked at that as an individual choice thing. And, and indeed it is. Don't misunderstand me. But also, as a culture, that's a blight that is a harbinger of the eventual collapse of that culture. That's true in history, and it's true in our day. How interesting. Well, let's continue. Verse, at verse 7. To him that made great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn. And brought out Israel from among them. With a strong hand and with a stretched out arm. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts. This is obviously referring to the Exodus, which is Israel's birthday. They went down to Israel as a family of 70. They came out as a nation. Israel's birthday is, is specifically described that way in Exodus chapter 4. It's the, the birth of the nation as a nation. Let's continue. And he made Israel to pass through the midst of it. And overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. To him which led his people through the wilderness. You know, as we sing this, and I'm sorry to keep pausing here, but there's some other thoughts to reinforce what's going on here. Moses commanded them to remember the wilderness years because they're going to, from after their exodus, they're going to wander in the wilderness. They are to remember those wilderness years. Those were years that were unnecessary. Those were years that came about because of their lack of faith at Kadesh Barnea. And for that lack of faith, they were condemned, so to speak, to for 38 years, call it 40, 40 years, to wander in the wilderness. It was a time of failure. And again and again and again, they, they failed. And uh, in Deuteronomy 8, uh, uh, Moses emphasizes all of that. But the reason I emphasize that here is because Paul told us to do the same thing. In Romans 15.4, to give just one example, it says, Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning so that we through the comfort and patience of the Scriptures might have hope. And so that's, uh, that's obviously relevant to us today. 
Continuing, to him which smote great kings and slew famous kings. Sihon, the king of Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. Let me pause again just to give you something to write about in your notes. There were three kings that are conspicuously defeated. Pharaoh of Egypt, Sihon of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. These were defeated with Moses in the wilderness wanderings, right? When they enter Canaan, they're going to be confronted to, with seven nations. It fascinated me to notice that there are ten in total, three up front, seven in the land. It's interesting, it may not be relevant, and yet it may be profoundly relevant. You see, to you and I, as Western minds, we tend to think of prophecy as, as prediction and fulfillment. They predict something, it happens. That's prophecy. To the Jewish mind, prophecy is pattern. They see patterns in everything God does. And uh, prophetic patterns. Well, it's interesting that we have ten nations, three were put down and seven continue. It's interesting how the Antichrist, at the end time, there's going to be ten, a ten-horned situation, three he puts down, Seventy. That's why there's seven heads and ten horns in some of the images of Daniel and also Revelation. You wonder if what happened in the land isn't a foreshadowing of what's going to happen on a global basis later. I wouldn't make too much of it, but I submit it for your thoughts. Continuing, and they gave their land for, and speaking of God, and gave their land for a heritage, even a heritage unto Israel his servant. Now, another thing, just as we, as we dwell a little bit, this is in this praise here, we're going through the history of Israel and its relevance. Canaan, when they crossed over to Canaan, Canaan's not heaven. A lot of songs and stuff sort of crossing over Jordan like we're going to heaven. No, you're going into the promised land. That's not the same thing. You're entering into inheritance. That's true. But there are wars in Canaan. There's no wars in heaven. It's not heaven. People can make a mistake there. It just, but it does picture, in a certain sense, our inheritance, Christ, in, inheritance in Jesus Christ in that we need to claim our walk by faith and defeat Satan's attempts to keep us in bondage. But the, the, the time in Canaan was a struggle. It was a time of victory, but a time, a time of challenge. That's not heaven. It's, a, it's anticipatory of that. Let's continue, verse 23. Who remembered us in our low estate... And hath redeemed us from our enemies, who giveth food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven. And that's probably the last verse that we need to really claim, very especially. All of us should frequently pause. And be serious about giving thanks to what God has done in each of our lives. For his mercy indeed endureth forever. Okay, that's the antiphonal psalm, Psalm 136. 
familiar to us because we remember the refrain if we don't remember all the specific issues. But now we're going to move on, which is in a sense is a, uh, a, a change, well, it certainly is a change of pace. We're going to now have what's technically called an imprecatory psalm, one that calls down retaliation on enemies. Um, and it has the most astonishing last verse of any psalm you can imagine. A psalm that's disturbingly shocking. The last verse will say, I'm giving it to you out of context here, Happy shall he be, he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. You've got to be kidding. Is that saying what you think it says? Well, we'll take a look as we go. You know, there are many that will say, uh, uh, in a naive sort of way, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. But you discover they're ignorant of what's between those two covers. And this is one of those places that will be disturbing. Let's just get in here. It opens up with a locale, the frame of reference here. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. So this is a song, a hymn, that was composed in reference to the time of the captivity. You may recall, Nebuchadnezzar took the nation into captivity, the Babylonian captivity, 70 years. And uh, if we look at a timeline, after Abraham and all of that, we finally get to Moses and the Exodus. And then uh, after the Exodus, ultimately they'll... Uh, come back and settle the land and go through and the monarchy will emerge and, uh, 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 under David and then uh, eventually they uh, will uh, get captured by B Babylon. I want to look a little more closely at the period of time that this, this psalm is really echoing, if you will. And after the monarchy, they go into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years they come out of that, and the period after that is called the post-exile period. And uh, we, we have uh, Haggai and Zechariah as the post-exile prophets, and we have the history of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and all of that before we get to the New Testament. But it's interesting that the Babylonian captivity itself doesn't have any record of what's going on inside it. We know they were taken slaves, we know when Cyrus conquers Babylon, he frees them, but there's this 70-year time where we have a little insight. And uh, Babylon uh, conquered uh, the region. The first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, he took the captives that included Daniel and his friends. Um, the, the, uh, they were, they were uh, the, Ezekiel in Babylon and uh, Jeremiah in Jerusalem. Preached to the people to yield to Nebuchadnezzar. He's the instrument of God. And uh, God is using it as his judgment. And uh, the false prophets convinced the king that, no, they're God's chosen people. We should rebel. And they finally, they did. Nebuchadnezzar puts him down again and changes, puts a different king in charge. Subject to him, of course. The second siege takes some more captives. Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel in Babylon preach along the lines that yield to Nebuchadnezzar. If you rebel again, he'll destroy Jerusalem. Right now, Jerusalem's run by them. They're enslaved, but they're, they still have their city. Well, again, the false prophets uh, talk them into rebelling again. By the time 
they do that again. Nebuchadnezzar has had a belly full of the whole operation. He levels the place, takes them all uh, slaves. The third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Important to understand there are three sieges. Many people miss on this. The servitude of the nation begins with the first siege. That's when the nation became captive as a nation. Jerusalem was still subject to them, but uh, in existence. The decree of Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, conquers Babylon. And uh, Daniel greets him and shows him the letter that God wrote to him 150 years earlier. That's in our book of Isaiah. And uh, he's so impressed because his name, he has his career, his name all mentioned to him, written 150 years earlier. He's impressed with that. He releases them to go home and gives them financial incentives to go home under the decree of Cyrus. So a group, about 50,000, go home to re go back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild. the. It's, it's all in rubbles, but they go to rebuild their temple. This, the degree of Cyrus starts, the, is, in effect, the rule of the Persian Empire as far as Israel is concerned. The desolations of Jerusalem started with the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. And it isn't until Nehemiah, when they return after Cyrus, under Ezra, they try to rebuild the temple, but they're harassed because of all... They're, they're not in a position to defend themselves. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a meager effort. Until Nehemiah, who is cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, a successor then to, uh, in, in, uh, in the uh, Greek scheme of things, um, uh, gives Nehemiah the authority to go rebuild the city, the city walls. And so it's under Nehemiah, uh, he, under his term, they're allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Now the reason that's so important, the decree of Artaxerxes is the trigger, if you will, to the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy. It's very important. It's, it turns out to be very precise, very, very thrilling piece of work. But what's interesting, the servitude of the nation was to be 70 years. The, the desolations of Jerusalem were also predicted to be 70 years. But they're not coterminous. The desolations start later and they are relieved. But each one is fulfilled to the day, prophetically. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music